Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming back bodily. In Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus was lifted up in a cloud before the eyes of his apostles, the 11 remaining apostles. And as they stood looking into the heavens, awestruck and perplexed, two men in white clothing, obviously angels, said these words to the apostles. This Jesus who has been taken up from heaven, from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back bodily as he left. And the New Testament repeatedly affirms that return of Jesus. And one particular word that consistently is used to speak of the coming of Jesus back to earth is the word parousia. And I'm going to quote a bunch of New Testament verses that speak of the second coming, most of whom, most of which use the word parousia. 1 Corinthians 5, 22 and 23. So also in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, parousia. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, parousia? In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and 16, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming, the parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together with him. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, his parousia. And then Peter uses the word. In 2 Peter 3, 4, he says, mockers will come, saying, where is the promise of his coming, his parousia? And in 3, 12, looking for and hastening the coming, the parousia of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. There's no question that Jesus is coming back bodily to the earth as he left. But the question is, as we study Mark 13, and I ask you to turn again to Mark chapter 13, where we are studying the Olivet Discourse, is does this passage, does this discourse speak about the second coming of Christ? As your Bibles are open there, in verse 26, there are some who believe that The second coming of Christ is in view when it speaks of Jesus coming in clouds with great power and glory. But as I explained last time, I don't think this is talking about the second coming of Christ. I think in light of Daniel 7.13, this is talking about Jesus, the Son of Man, coming up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, where he receives an eternal kingdom because the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was another reminder that the kingdom of Christ has come. It was a vindication of Jesus and his kingdom. But friends, I do believe that this Olivet Discourse does speak 
about the second coming of Christ. I believe that in verses 32 to 37, Jesus talks about his second coming. That's our text for this morning as we finish our study in the Olivet Discourse. Follow as I read those verses. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the, the rooster crows, or in the morning, the four watches of the night. In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. I have only two points this morning. The first is much more brief. The first is be alert to Christ's second coming. Now, my contention has been that all the way up to verse 31, Christ has been predicting the events surrounding the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. Now, I want to be quick to say, as I said once before, that I, I do leave the door open for the fact that this destruction of the temple may be a picture in miniature, a microcosm, a type, a prefigurement of what will happen at the end of the age. Why do I say that? Without going into detail, there's a, there's a prophetic concept called the day of the Lord. And even as I read it in my devotions this week in, in Isaiah 13, sometimes the day of the Lord speaks of judgments upon a particular nation like Babylon. But in the same context, it speaks about God's judgment of the world. I'm not going to take the time to take you there. But this, this prophetic concept, day of the Lord, can speak of, and sometimes it speaks of these cosmic convulsions that are taking place. Sometimes it speaks of judgments upon a particular nation. But then in the same context, talks about the ultimate judgment and day of the Lord at the end of time. So I leave room for the fact that this what happened in 70 AD may be a type, a prefigurement of what will happen at the end of the age, but it is clearly primarily talking about those historical events. But I believe in verse 32, there's a shift in focus, and Jesus changes from talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple to now talking about his second coming. And let me give you some evidences as to why I believe Jesus makes that shift and that the verses I just read pertain to his second coming. I have six points. One is the transitional language. You notice when he goes from 31 to 32, in verse 32 he says, but of that day or hour no one knows. And in the Greek, the but is Two little Greek words, peri-day, but concerning. And Ken Gentry points out that that little phrase, peri-day, in the Greek, is often used as a transition indicator when there's a change of subject. And one good example of that is in 1 Corinthians. You need not turn there, but you know how the Corinthians had a lot of problems and in his first letter, Paul addresses multiple problems in the Corinthian church. Well, listen to this. In chapter 7 and verse 1, as he shifts topics, he says, in chapter 7 and verse 1, 
Now concerning the things about which you wrote, he's changing topics, 7-1, 7-25. Now concerning, the same little phrase, parade. now concerning virgins, I have no command. He changes subjects. In chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, he's changing subjects with the introduction of Puri Day. In chapter 12 and verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, again, he shifts the topic. And so here in Mark 13, 32, he says, Puri Day, but of that day, indicates that he's changing topics from what he has been talking about. Secondly, the use of the, of the word parousia. In the parallel text of Matthew 24, Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, the question framed by the disciples is this, what will be the, the time of your coming, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the word coming is parousia. But Jesus doesn't use that word until at the end of the discourse when he says what for the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And a couple verses later, so will the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man be. So when they say, when will these things happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? They thought it was one question, but Jesus knew it was two. What will be the sign of your parousia? When he finally answers that question at the end of Matthew 24, he talks about it will be like in the days of Noah, clearly talking about his second coming. As we see, parousia, I would say universally, refers to the second coming of Christ. Thirdly, why does he shift to talking about his second coming in verse 32? Because of the absence of signs. In all that has gone before, there are a lot of signs that Jesus was giving as to what is, when 70 AD is going to happen. There were the birth pang signs, right? There will be false Christs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and there will be famines. And then there's the one big sign, when you see the abomination of desolation. He's giving all these signs to prepare them for what's coming down in 70 AD. But when we come to verse 32 and following, there are no signs. There's an absence of signs. As far as that day, no one knows. Not the angels, not even the Son, but only the Father, the absence of signs. In Matthew, when Jesus talks about his parousia, what I understand to be his second coming, he says it will be like in the days of Noah, Matthew 24, 37 to 39. For the coming parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man be. Sam Storms says this, Humanity will be immersed in the routine affairs of life. It will be like it was in the days of Noah. The world will be caught completely off guard by the coming of Christ. People will be engaged in normal routine occupations of life, farming, fellowship, marriage, etc. Jesus will come at a time of widespread indifference, normalcy, materialistic endeavors, when everyone is thoroughly involved in the pursuit of their earthly affairs and ambitions. Jesus will come at a time when his coming is the farthest thing from people's minds. 
And then he goes on in Matthew 24 to give this illustration of his second coming in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would also have allowed his house, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And so there are no signs. In fact, he says it's going to be like a thief. A thief doesn't announce his coming. He doesn't say, by the way, at 2 a.m., I plan to come in, and this is going to be my point of entry. Uh, many of you would be ready, some of you with your loaded 9 millimeter, right? <laughs> and, or some means you're not going to let him come. And Jesus said if, if we knew when Jesus was coming, when we knew the thief was coming, we'd prepare. But there's no way to prepare because you don't know when he's coming. So all these signs versus the distinct absence of signs at the second coming. Fourth, the absence of time indicators. In the previous section related to 70 AD, we have these time indicators. Verse 11, when they arrest you. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, then those who are in Judea must flee. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, verse 24, but in those days, verse 27, and then he will send forth, when, then, those... Time indicators. We come to verse 32. There are no longer any time indicators. There's also a contrast between days and day. 13:19. Speak of days. For those days will be a time of tribulation. Verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Verse 24. But in those days, you have days. But then in verse 32, you have, but of that day, days versus day. And one more, the contrast in the social setting. When 70 AD is going to happen and Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed, according to Ken Gentry, it will be chaotic, dangerous, and confused. Right? There will be wars and rumors of wars leading up to it, earthquakes and famines. There will be the abomination of desolation. But when Jesus comes again, it will be like in the days of Noah. Tranquil. Business as usual. And so, brothers and sisters, I think there is abundant evidence that Jesus is switching topics here in verse 32. He's answered the question, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will there not be one stone left upon another? He's answered that up until verse 31. But in verse 32, he's now going to answer the second question, which they really thought was one. What will be the sign of your parousia in the end of the age? But for the remainder of our time, first point is be aware of his second coming. For the remainder of our time, we're going to consider be prepared for his second coming. You know, the Lord Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, isn't he? The New Testament calls him the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And as the ultimate shepherd, Jesus cares about his people. He cared about his first century saints. And that's why he repeatedly warned them. Verse 5, see to it, take heed, blepo, that no one misleads you. That's the Greek word. In 13.9, be on your guard, blepo. 
Verse 23, take heed, blepo. You see, Jesus warned his first century disciples about what was coming down at Jerusalem so that they would be spared that Holocaust. They would be spared that horror. And apparently most, if not all Christians were spared the horrific events that happened in 70 AD because they believed Jesus and they headed for the hills. In the same way, our good shepherd cares about us. He's coming back and he wants us to be prepared for his coming, for his return. How can we be prepared? Well, in order to prepare us for what it means to be prepared, I did a thorough word study on all three words that are used in our text to call us to be alert. In verse 33, take heed is the word blepo. Be on the alert is the word agrupneo, keep awake, watch. In verse 35, be on the alert, gregoreo. Greg is not here this morning, but it's the word from which we get Gregory, the name Gregory. So when you see Greg, you can say, how are you, watchful? Because Gregoreo means watchful. And then in verse 37, beyond the alert, also Gregoreo. Three words, blepo, agrupneo, and Gregoreo. I did a study on these words to try to understand what will it take for us, you and me, to be prepared when Jesus comes. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be watchful. Why does it pertain to us? Because in verse 37, he says to his disciples, what I say to you, I say to all, including us, be on the alert. Why does Jesus want us to be on the alert? Because he's coming back. Secondly, because no one knows when he is coming back, not even the Son And I feel obliged to take a little detour here for a couple of minutes and try to explain that because some people stumble over that. Wait a minute. Even Jesus did not know when he was coming back. How do we understand that? Well, theologian R.C. Sproul helps us. And I'm going to quote him. At the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, the church acknowledged the mystery of the incarnation, noting that that no man can fully grasp the way in which the two natures of Jesus are united in one person. Chalcedon took a firm stand, saying that Jesus is truly man and truly God. But then Sproul goes on to explain, quote again, the union of God and man is without mixture, without confusion, separation, or division, each nature retaining its own attributes. So friends, the natures of Jesus, divine and human, are not blended in such a way that that they're a hybrid. Hybrid. So what is it if you were to take um, red and green clay and mix them together, you get what? Brown, right? It's no longer red or green, it's brown. Jesus was not a mixture of divine and human, so you got some third kind of entity. No. Quoting Sproul again, the attributes of deity remained in the divine nature and the attributes of humanity remained in the human nature. There were times in Jesus' earthly ministry when his human nature manifested itself. He was hung when he was hungry, when he sweated in Gethsemane, Sproul says. In that human nature, Jesus did not possess omniscience. Of course, the divine nature could and frequently did communicate supernatural knowledge to Jesus' human nature. 
but the divine nature did not communicate everything it knew to the human nature. So when Jesus said he did not know the day and the hour of his coming, he was speaking with regards to his human nature. That's probably the best explanation we can give. And that's a little bit of a detour, but I think we needed to say that to understand that rightly. Why do we need to be prepared? Because Jesus is coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. In fact, it will be at a time we least expect it, like in the days of Noah. But the real clincher as to why we need to be prepared for the return of Jesus is given to us in verses 35 to 37. Be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. The idea is Jesus has gone away and he's coming back. But in the meantime, he has put his slaves, I should have read verse 34, he has put his slaves in charge. Literally, he has given them authority. We are his slaves. We are his servants. We have been entrusted with things from the Lord. And the sense is that when he comes back, we're going to give an account to him as stewards for what we have done with what was entrusted to us. So the real clincher as to why we need to be alert and watchful and prepared for the return of Jesus. Yes, he's coming back. Yes, we don't know when. Yes, it's going to be unexpected. But when he does, we will be accountable to him to give a report of what we've done with what he has given to us. And so for the rest of our time, I want to explore with you what it means to be prepared. And like I said, I've taken a, done a word study on each of these words. Take heed, blepo. Keep on the alert, agrupneo. And stay on the alert. Be on the alert, gregoreo. And as I did these word studies, I've come up with four categories, four areas in which we need to be on the alert and prepared for the return of Jesus. And the first is this. Keep on the alert for false teaching. Back in Mark 8, 15, Remember, Jesus warned with these words, beware of blepo. I'm going to be repeating the Greek words that are used here. Beware of blepo, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so we need to avoid the false teaching of the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees about? They were external and formalistic in their religion. They were legalistic. They had added to the law of God their own man-made rabbinic rules. We're going to be prepared for the return of Jesus. May we not be those who are legalistic and add rules to Jesus' rules. Nor do we need to be like Herod. Herod was known for his worldliness. We need to avoid worldliness. In Philippians 3, 2, Paul says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. And the word beware again is blepo. Beware of the false circumcision. He's talking about the Judaizers. What were they about? They were trying to add to the gospel. Paul had brought the gospel to the Galatians. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They said, ah, it's not enough. You also need to be Jewish law keepers. You need to be circumcised. And Paul says, they're evil workers. Beware of them. And we need to beware, brothers and sisters, of adding anything to the gospel of grace. 
If you do, you will not be prepared to face Jesus, who's going to come and say, my gospel was one of grace and not works. How dare you add works to the gospel of grace? Beware then. It's another use of that word. In Colossians 2.8, we have another use of the word blepo, where the apostle says to the Colossian Christians, I didn't write these all out, so I've got to just turn to it. He says, see to it, blepo, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so, we must not follow the traditions of men. We need to be, see to it, blepo, that we never allow the traditions of men to take the place of the Bible. Second John 7 and 8 uses the word blepo, where John says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in, in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he says, blepo, watch yourselves. You know, so many of the errors that we need to avoid concern the person of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. Because Satan knows that's the heartbeat of Christianity. That's the jugular. And even as the predator goes not for the tail and the hind legs, but he goes for the jugular vein, Satan knows to go for the jugular in Christianity. And that's to attack the doctrine of the person of Christ. And so these Gnostics in that day denied the humanity of Jesus. He had a phantom body, these Gnostics. But in our day, there are people who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Either way, it is heresy. And so John says, watch yourselves. They are deceivers who deny the humanity of Jesus or deny the deity of Jesus. And so the first call is to be alert to false doctrine and not fall prey to it. So what are some of the false doctrines in our day that we need to avoid if we're going to be prepared to meet Jesus? Well, certainly the teaching of the cults who deny essential truths about Christ and the gospel. They deny the deity of Jesus. The prosperity gospel. Preachers such as Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Paula White, who sadly is a counselor to Donald Trump. It tells you something about that man, that he would take Paula White to be his counselor when he has so many other options. Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, these are prosperity gospelers, and that's something that is a false gospel. We need to steer clear of the gospel of easy believism that leaves out repentance and the lordship of Christ. We need to avoid, as we studied in Sunday school, the tenets of the social gospel as it's now conceived, critical theory, wokeism, which, as we saw in several weeks of Sunday school, is an alternative religion, not politics, it's religion. We must avoid the compromise that some are making when, with regard to complementarianism, having women be pastors and women be preachers, contrary to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, false teaching is dangerous. As I said in the previous hour, doctrine and life always go together. That's why I love Titus 1.1. Paul speaks of the truth that is according to godliness. If you're going to live rightly, you need to believe rightly. That's why his word for sound doctrine is a word from which we get our, our word hygiene. 
It's healthy doctrine because only healthy doctrine will lead to healthy living. So we're going to be ready for the return of Jesus. We need to beware of an alert to false teaching and not fall prey to it. But then we need to keep watch over our own heart in various ways. A number of warnings have to do with our own hearts. In Hebrews 12, 25, the writer says, See to it, blepo, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. The writer to the Hebrews is referring to the Jews. God spoke through Moses to the Jews, and they didn't believe. As a result, they were kept out of the promised land, and they wandered for 40 years because they didn't believe God's messenger, Moses. Now the writer is saying, if they suffered for not believing an earthly messenger, how much more will it be consequential if we do not believe the one who comes from heaven, Jesus? So if you will be ready for the return of Christ, the first thing is you need to make sure that you have believed in Jesus and trusted him as your savior. May no one here be found unprepared to meet him because you have not put your trust completely in Jesus as your savior. But then we need to guard against temptation. For time's sake, I'll just refer you to a familiar passage where in Mark 14, which we will get to, Jesus is in the garden, and he's asking his disciples to watch with him for even an hour. And then he comes back, and he finds them sleeping, and he says these well-known words, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And the word watch is our word, gregoreo. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Will you be prepared to meet Jesus? You need to be aware of your particular flesh. See, not all flesh is created equal, we might say. We are tempted in different ways. And you need to know where your flesh tempts you to sin and be watchful and guarded against it. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to carry out its lusts. Watch and pray. And then... I'm going to skip over one. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul has these words. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, blepo, lest he fall. There's another warning. If we're going to be ready for the return of Jesus, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. One of the times when we are most vulnerable to fall into sin is when we're doing well. Do you find that? You're doing well. I'm in the word. I feel strong spiritually. I can kind of coast for a while. I can kind of neglect, lay off the means of grace. I don't need to be so strict about reading the Bible and praying and going to church. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm cruising along here. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for the push. But that's a time when we're vulnerable. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. That's a time when we need to be especially guarded. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't relax. Don't let your guard down because all of a sudden you'll fall. We also need to be aware of Satan. Again, we're going to be alert, prepared for Jesus' coming. The familiar words of 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be on the alert. Gregoreo, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
And here again, just as you need to know your particular flesh, you need to know something about the devil's ways with you. The devil knows how to get you. And you've lived long enough as a Christian. You know how he gets you. Now, sometimes he's a roaring lion who comes to intimidate, to fear and anxiety. Other times he comes as an angel of light. He makes something look really good. But it's the hook with the juicy bait, or it's rather the hook with the juicy bait that hides the hook. And so you need to know, how does the devil operate with me? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're not ignorant of his wiles. And if you're going to be alert, you need to be alert to Satan and how he comes at you because the scriptural command is resist him, firm in your faith. I'll skip over some here. In Mark 4, 24, he was saying to them, take care, blepo, what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. We studied this in Mark 4. Jesus says, Blepo, take care what you listen to. Here's the principle. As we receive light, and as we obey it, we get more light. But when we receive the light of truth, and we reject it or disobey it, Jesus says, even what you have will be taken away. And so we need to be alert to make sure that when we receive truth from God, that we process it and we obey it. Because there's this principle at work. Either you will be further illuminated and get brighter and brighter, or you will have an encroaching darkness. If you don't obey the light you already have, God's not going to give you more light. So we need to be alert. We want to be those who are... Well, like Proverbs says, buy the truth and sell it not, right? Constantly buying the truth, not selling it, not giving it away, but, but buying more and more truth, onward and upward, so we'll be prepared to meet him in that day. And then love of the brethren. In 1 Corinthians 8 9, in the context of Christian liberty, Paul says, take care, blepo, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care, blepo, that you are not consumed by one another. We need to grow in our loving, in our love toward our brothers and sisters. We need to take care that we're looking out for the consciences of our brothers and sisters, that we're not devouring one another, but devoted to one another. So keep watch over your own heart in these various ways. And then keep on the alert in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert, our group neo, one of our words, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We want to be prepared and ready to meet Jesus when he comes. We need to be alert in prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to God. Prayer is the language of dependency. Prayer is what calls God into every situation of our lives for the wisdom we need, the strength we need, the help we need, the deliverance we need. Be alert in prayer. And then finally, keep alert to fulfill your own callings. From our passage, the departing householder, which is Jesus, gives authority to his slaves. He assigns each one a task or a work, ergon, to do. 
no small part of our being prepared to meet Jesus is that we be faithful to the charges that he gives us. And here's an application for me and Sean as pastors. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, well, first of all, here's this principle. As we, as we think of our stewardship, of what he's been entrusted to us, here's the great principle, 1 Corinthians 4.1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Brothers and sisters, that's all he wants from you. Faithfulness. That is the bottom line. What does it mean for me as a pastor to be faithful? 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful, blepo, how he builds upon it. One of the things I'm going to have to answer for is how I have built on the foundation of Christ in his church. Has my ministry been a Christ-centered ministry? Christ laid the found, Paul laid the foundation. It's Christ. Has my ministry been a Christ-centered ministry that exalts Jesus? That's something I must be careful about. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. They keep watch. Agrupneo. They keep watch over your souls. I'm going to give account to Jesus. How have I watched over the souls of those who are entrusted to me? But you as the people of God all have callings. First of all, you need to know what your callings are. You're called to be a child of God. You're called, some of you, to be husbands. You may be called to be a wife, a father, a mother, a child, a student, a workman, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, a relative, a neighbor, a citizen. Those are our callings. Know your callings. Know what your callings entail. What is Jesus going to expect from you concerning your callings? Well, as husbands, he's going to want to know, how have you loved your wife, led your wife, provided for your wife, protected your wife, nourished her, cherished her, studied her to be knowledgeable of her, and honored her as a joint heir of life? He's going to want to know if you wives, how have you helped your husband because you've been called to be his helper? How have you respected him? How have you submitted to him? Children, you know what God's going to expect of you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is right. Parents, what does he expect of you? Bring up your children in the paideia, the discipline, and the nuthesia, the instruction of the Lord. As a friend, he expects you to be a loyal friend. As a neighbor, he expects you to love your neighbor as a worker in the workplace, he says, do your work heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. You're not working for eye service. You're not working just when your boss is, is watching. You're working, doing your work, whether it's in the home or in the workplace, unto the Lord. You're called to be a witness, salt and light in the world. All these are charges, stewardships that we have been given. Know what they are. Know what they entail. And prioritize your callings when you can. God is always first. Don't neglect God for anything, not even your marriage. Your marriage comes next. Don't neglect your marriage for your children. Some people, you know, neglect each other and they devote to the children and the children become a buffer. 
rather than a bond. No, your marriage comes first. The best gift you can give to your children is to have a good marriage. So marriage is over family. Don't neglect your family for ministry out there. Don't be ministering to everybody else and counseling everybody else while your own family is being neglected. Don't neglect the church for the world because in Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So know what your callings are. Know what they entail. Prioritize them. Then labor prayerfully under God to fulfill your callings with a view to Jesus saying to us when he returns, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're coming back. And you call us in many places, in many ways, to be alert and watchful. Help us to take these words to heart and be ready to meet you, whether at death or at your return. Thank you that a rich reward awaits your people. Thank you in your name.